If you're not already there, please turn to Romans 12. title of the message this morning is Love and Hate. Love and Hate. Screen just went blank. Okay. There we go. It went blank again. Glad I hit that record button. Okay. The last time we were together in Romans... We covered the spiritual gifts listed in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 12. And I left off that last time by saying that many people have multiple gifts and that we shouldn't assume that we only have one gift. And lastly, I said to you that we are all commanded elsewhere in Scripture to exercise some of these gifts despite the fact that a particular gift may not be your primary gifting. For example, all of us do not have the gift of prophecy. It is a very specific and not oft-given gift in the body of Christ today. However, we are all called and expected to exhort and encourage one another, and we are all called to contribute to each other with generosity. Those are other gifts, but we're all called to do them because they are also virtues that are elsewhere found repeatedly in the New Testament as responsibilities for us all who call ourselves Christians. Again, that does not, however, negate the fact that there are people within the body of Christ who have very special giftings in those same areas. They've been given a fuller measure of grace and a fuller measure of faith in regard to those particular Gifts. We see this repeatedly if you're taking notes. I'm not going to go to all these scriptures, but if you want to write them down, we see this repeatedly in passages like, well, for, first of all, our text, Romans 12, verses 4 through 6, and we see it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 and verse 11. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12, which is often called the gifts chapter, verses 4 and 6 there also, and 1 Peter chapter 4, Verses 9 through 11. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. And we are to be good stewards of our spiritual gifts, which are given to us by by God's grace, as he sees fit. And so, even though we are all called to be encouraging and generous towards each other, There are still some people in the body of Christ who are called specifically to abound in those areas because they've been given more grace by God in those specific areas. Everybody with me on that? Also, we are called to do these things with joy. We don't use our gifts begrudgingly. We do them with joy, as stated elsewhere in Scripture. And we are to receive our gifts humbly in faith, and we are to gladly use them to serve the body of Christ, which is what I think uh, Jason was getting at in the one another. We should be looking for and praying about ways and opportunities to use our gifts to serve the church. I see so many Christians today who do absolutely nothing in the body of Christ. Nothing. I mean, I know Christians that have been saved for 35 years. No fruit at all, let alone use their gifts. They don't do anything. No Bible studies, 
No get-togethers, you know, nothing. It blows my mind. That is entirely antithetical to everything we are taught in Scripture, not only about spiritual gifts, but about being a Christian. If you are not using your spiritual gifts to minister to the body of Christ, then you are in sin. You're being disobedient to the Lord. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 11, where the Apostle Paul speaks again about spiritual gifts, as I said a moment ago, he says that each of us have been given a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. That's for the common good of this church, this local church, and the church, the body of Christ at large, both. And after he lists nine gifts there in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that all of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, who works all things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So in summary, we are, or we all, I should say, have gifts that differ. Romans 12, 6. They are according to the grace given to us by God. Romans 12, 6. We are to exercise them accordingly. Romans 12, 6 and 7. And some of these gifts that are listed in the New Testament and that I mentioned a moment ago are to be exercised, as I said, by all, for all in the body of Christ. And let's not forget, folks, the context here in which we are studying this. Remember the very beginning of our chapter, chapter 12. Look at the first two verses. The context, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship or reasonable service. So we're worshiping God by using our gifts. So antithetically, if we don't use our gifts, we're not worshiping God through our gifts or the use of them. And in the body of Christ, we have to keep in mind, we have to remind ourselves of this, especially in this country, where we have this rugged individualism about us. We have to remind ourselves that we are individually members of one another. That's verse 5 of Romans 12. We are members of one another. And it's in this context that we move on now to verse 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. Now, what does Paul say here? Jason just read it. Let your love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, let your love be genuine in verse 9? He means... Your love should be without hypocrisy. That's the literal Greek rendering here. Your love should be without hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, most Bible translations, English translations, don't say, let your love be genuine like the ESV puts it. Most English translations say, let your love be without hypocrisy, which is the correct way to interpret that. The older translations, like the King James and the Douay Rames, the Douay Rames is the Catholic KJV, Catholic version of Elizabethan Bible, but it's a good translation. So these older translations, like the KJV and Douay Rames, they uh, say, let your love be without dissimulation. Dissimulation, that's the same word 
that Paul used over in Galatians 2.13 when Peter was placating, he was being a hypocrite, him and Barnabas were placating the Jews, okay, um, and shrinking back from, from eating with the Gentiles, spending time with the Gentiles, because they didn't want to tick off the Jews. That's dissimulation. It's hypocrisy. Okay, so Paul is saying, let your love be without falsehood, without a counterfeit motive. You've met these people who always have an angle. Everything, every word that comes out of their mouth and every action that they do, even their friendships, everything's an angle. They're always trying to connive or manipulate or get one up on somebody, okay? Paul's talking about the opposite of that here. We're not supposed to have counterfeit motives when we love one another. We're supposed to have a sentiment of purpose, focus, true love. So that's how we are not supposed to love. So how are we? To love, more specifically, I'm asking. I just spoke in generalities. What does loving without hypocrisy look like? What does it look like to abhor evil? Well, let's look at the scriptures for our answers. In First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-two, Peter says that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. A pure heart is the opposite of a hypocritical heart. Earnestly means intentional, resolute, purposeful. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, that our love toward one another is supposed to be sincere. So in our text, the love that Paul is speaking of is a love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord that is not only void of hypocrisy, but it also doesn't expect anything in return. I hear people all the time say things like, well, you know, I did this for her and she didn't even acknowledge it. And furthermore, she never does anything for me, so I am done with her. I'm not doing anything anymore for her. Eh, wrong motive, wrong attitude, hypocrite. If that's you calling yourself a Christian, you're not loving from a sincere and pure heart. And we have all been guilty of this. If you say you haven't, you're a liar. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul chastises the Christians at Corinth for bringing lawsuits against one another. He says to them, why not rather be wronged and defrauded? Wow. Think about that one for a minute. Well, this contractor that I know from my church who calls himself a Christian, quoted me five grand to gut my bathroom out and to put a new one in. And he ended up charging me seven grand because he said, at least he claims, that he ran into more problems than he thought. And he was going to, um, it cost him more materials than he had calculated. And so he had to charge me $2,000 more than he quoted me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take him to the magistrate. And furthermore, I'm going to tell everybody at our church to never hire him. Paul says, why not rather be defrauded than drag Christ's name through the mud? Isn't it better for us to love like Jesus loves that's what Paul's saying here. Paul goes on to say that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of our God. And as such, 
you have no grounds for treating your brother or sister in Christ like this. We're talking about fellow Christians here. You are to love them sincerely from the heart. Your love is to be pure. Your love is to be genuine. Let us not forget, church, we have put off the old man. We have put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And we are renewed in the spirit of our minds, or at least we should be, And as such, Paul says, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. The new self isn't easily angered. The new self isn't spiteful. The new self doesn't do tit for tat or blow for blow or payback or vengeance. The new self says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in this tent, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 If your old self was crucified with Christ and it is now Christ who lives in you, then you will act like Christ. Or at least you should. We should. I include myself. And Christ's love was always without hypocrisy. How did Christ react to those that mistreated him? He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Not everyone, folks, is going to love you. but you are to love them genuinely. I know, by the way, breaking news, you should go ahead and expect people not to love you in return when you love them. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. John fifteen twenty. Jesus also said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Luke 6, 8. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Luke 6, 32 and 33. So let your love, Christian, be without hypocrisy. Moving on. What does Paul say in our text about evil? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You should first know that the Greek is even harsher than the ESV and even the NASB, which is more literal translation. The Greek says that we are to hate what is evil, hence the title of the message, Love and Hate. Hate what is evil and cleave or cling to what is good. Have mercy on this part. I see so many Christians today, instead of abhorring what is evil, they are loving what is evil. They love it. 
And instead of holding fast to what is good or clinging to what is good, they're clinging to what is evil. Now, if I step on some toes with these examples, so be it. I'm sorry, Jesus didn't worry about stepping on toes. The Tickle Me Elmo churches are down the road. Actually, they're on every corner. Take your pick. We preach the truth in love because we love you. Our text. Personally, I like the word abhor here. So I'm going to use that. What does the word abhor mean? It means to despise and be repulsed by evil. To despise and be repulsed by evil. Those who are truly in Christ will not be passive concerning evil. One commentator says um, that they won't be passive concerning evil, but will instead have an intense revulsion against it. Christians today, and when I say that, I'm using the word Christian loosely. People who claim to be Christians, okay, they like to sweep evil under the rug by either not talking about it or, better yet, just ignoring it. And the sad part is that people who call themselves Christians today purposely expose themselves to evil. The entire time they're playing church or playing Christian, they are following the prince of the power of the air And they don't even realize it. Well, some of them do. Some of them don't. And if that's, I'm asking, not just the people in this room, but the people who will hear this via the World Wide Web, I'm asking, is that you this morning? Do you play with evil? Do you flirt with it? If you do, you are playing with fire. Now, what are some of the evils that Christians accept today in this postmodern world that we live in? What kind of evil do you accept? Ask yourself that here. What kind of evil do I accept instead of abhorring? We'll start with three words, media and entertainment. Media and entertainment. Tell me what you watch on TV. Show me what you listen to in your car or at the gym. Show me where you surf online and I will be able to determine if you abhor evil or if you are a counterfeit Christian. Watch it, Mike. You're getting legalistic. Really? I challenge you to counter anything I'm about to say with the word of God. Do you abstain from evil? Do you abhor it? Are you repulsed by it? First, in the music that you listen to. Do you listen to songs as a Christian? Do you listen to songs with lyrics about adultery? Sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, the glorification of drugs, drug use. Those things are evil. I don't believe that Christ is for promoting those things in song. Do you? I mean, really, do you believe that Christ is for promoting those things in song? And I can't imagine that Christ would be for us to fill our minds with such things. Over and over and over again. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, 
Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, or spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can you possibly be making music in your heart to the Lord when you are listening to a song in your car about loving the one you're with instead of the one that you're married to? I'm asking. Which one of those two ways that I presented is your way? Do you fill your ears your mind, your heart, your being with lyrics to play over and over and over again in your head about the sexual escapades and the drug use of some heathen band of whose personal lives we have no connection whatsoever. Do you think that's pleasing to God? It's not. It's not. A word about Christian music. Some of what you will say, and I have been guilty of saying this in the past. People have said to me, many people have said this to me. You don't understand. I'm a musician and Christian music, Christian musicians, they just don't cut it. How many of you have ever thought that? Be honest. Okay. Christian musicians, it's like, it's like this unwritten rule. I couldn't make it as a secular musician, so now I'm a Christian musician, okay? Trust me when I tell you, folks, there are fantastic, incredible Christian musicians out there. You just haven't found them yet. And if you'd like a list of incredible, fantastic Christian musicians who are out there, who sing Christian lyrics, see me after the service and I'll give you a list. And if you're of, of a younger age, a much younger age than me, then contact Tim Pfeiffer. Because him and I have talked about this and he knows a lot of good Christian bands and good Christian musicians for people who are much younger than I am. They're out there. You just have to look a little bit and you'll find them. Anyway, we need to think about what we listen to. Does it draw us closer to God or does it cause a separation between us and God? Are we glorifying sin by listening to it? Or are we not? And people will say, well, I don't listen to the lyrics. Yes, you do. The lyrics play over and over in your mind. Three o'clock in the morning, that song, if you get up to take a leak at three in the morning, it's playing in your head. Sometimes you can't get it out of your head, right? Okay, so it affects us is my point. And it affects our relationship with the Lord. So let's be more selective about everything we listen to. Now let's talk about another evil that pervades the Christian life. I'm going to just say TV and streaming services. I'd like to talk to you men for a moment in regard to this. I see a lot of Christian guys who are obsessed with mixed martial arts. A lot. I just have a question for you, if that's you. Do you really think that your Christ is in any way pleased with two men, or now two women, getting inside a cage and literally attempting to beat each other unconscious? That's the goal. The goal is a knockout. Do you think that's pleasing to God? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, let your gentleness be evident to all. Ephesians 4, 5. What is it about 
the UFC, mixed martial arts, even boxing. What is it about those sports that are gentle? Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, Paul says, or seen in me put into practice, the God of peace, peace, not fighting, peace, will be with you. Peace, peace, peace. Purity, love, nobility, rightness. Two men and women or, or women beating each other to a bloody pulp is none of those things. In fact, it's completely antithetical to everything that is godly. What did Tertullian say? Yet I quoted it before in another sermon. The early Christians, remember Rome was very big into the, the games, the gladiators. Tertullian said, we Christians have nothing to do with the vanity of the gymnasium and the hypocrisy of the theater. And folks, there's no such thing as a gracious loser especially in those sports. And there's no such thing as a humble winner. Those are lies. More so than not, losers are resentful and even wallow in depression and spiteful thoughts of revenge, while winners are proud and boastful and many times arrogant. Losers feel humiliated and winners feel condescending. How do I know this? First of all, anyone with half a brain can observe it. After a fight is over, when the winner jumps up to the top of the octagon, flexes his muscles, yells and screams, beats his chest about how great he is and how he wants the head of the next opponent in the line for the title, while the loser, many times, if they're half conscious, storms out of the octagon in disgust, or if the winner comes over and does that, you know, fake hug, nice fight, the loser looks down at the ground, pulls himself away in sadness and defeat. Just observance. And I know it because I used to fight in karate tournaments in high school. And many of the guys that I sparred with and that I fought, they have this streak in them. It's the same streak that you see in these other fighters. And the streak is indescribable. They want to hurt you. They live to hurt people. They love to hurt people. You could see it in their eyes. You could feel it in their punches and their kicks. It's ugly. It's evil. It's not something that I participated in for a long time because I just wasn't that guy. And you have to be that guy that wants to hurt someone in order to win and move on. You have to. Thank God he was moving me toward Christ at that time in my life. And if you are in Christ, this sport and others like it should bother you. According to the Bible, it should bother you. Far from the loving and gentle, kind image of our Lord that we are commanded to be conformed to. Moving on, I just want to point out one last thing. Movies and sitcoms, and I'll throw dramas in there too. I see people who call themselves Christians who are heavily into horror flicks. And I don't understand this for the life of me. I don't get it. I don't understand how someone can read the Bible, come to know God, the God of the Bible, and at the same time want to expose themselves and their loved ones to films where people are being murdered 
sawn in two by a chainsaw, okay, in a very bloody and evil fashion, films with characters who portray demon possession, levitating, contorting themselves in demon possession into very wicked positions and displays that are grotesque. How could you call yourself a Christian and enjoy that? How could you call yourself a Christian and seek that out? I don't get it. In what world is the God of Christianity pleased with such things? He hates those things. They are evil. We are to abhor evil. We should be repulsed by those things. But yet, Christians purposely seek to be entertained by them, especially around Halloween. Whole other sermon. Then there's the evil that's portrayed in certain TV dramas and sitcoms, blatant evil in the form of sexual promiscuity, anti-Christ dialogue, anti-theistic storylines, anti-theistic violence, nudity, profanity, and everything, folks, that exalts itself against Jesus Christ. Everything that exalts itself against Scripture. And we as Christians, we don't just dabble in it. We embrace it wholeheartedly. We subscribe to it with our money. We pay to binge watch this garbage. We sneak and watch it after our kids go to bed because we know it's not something that we could watch in front of them. We don't want them to be exposed to it because we know they'll call us out. Kids aren't stupid. They can see you playing the hypocrite. We don't want to have to explain to them why mom and dad who just got home from church in the morning are watching profanity and nudity on HBO in the evening. Comedians, folks, comedians drag Christ's name through the mud incessantly. They make a laughing stock out of Christ and Christianity, and we watch them. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch any comedians. I'm not saying you have to, you have to stop watching all comedians, all movies, all dramas, all sitcoms. And you can't listen to any secular music. I hope you know me better than that. I'm saying you need to be selective. And what you select needs to line up with Scripture in order to not be in sin. Plain and simple. I mean, I can't make it any simpler. So, again, people will say about the sitcoms the same thing that they say about the music, they'll say, well, I just ignore that part. How could you ignore someone using Christ's name in vain on the screen in front of you? How could you say, I mean, that's just an outright lie. You can't ignore it. It should be like nails on a chalkboard for you to hear Christ's name used in vain. I know Christians When they go to the garage and their mechanic uses Christ's name in vain, they look them in the eye and they say, don't do that. I'm a Christian. Don't appreciate you taking my Lord's name in vain. That should be our response. But it's not. So anyway, I have two questions for you this morning in regard to our text, Romans 12, 9 and 10. Well, we're just going to do 9. Do you love people, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them genuinely, without hypocrisy? 
Do you abhor evil and cleave to what is good? If I've described you this morning in embracing or currently embracing in your life these evil things, then I have to ask you to please repent. Because if you don't, I fear for your soul. If it's habitual, if it's constant, if it's something that you've got no conviction about, then I fear for your soul. We're all sinners in this room. The Bible is very clear about that. As a pastor, I am not concerned about those here this morning who are sinners. That's not why I'm here this morning. I'm concerned about those Christians who are sinners who aren't alarmed by or convicted by their sin anymore. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the backslider who is continually ignoring any semblance of conviction from the Holy Spirit. Because if you're in habitual sin and these things do not alarm you, and if you are not convicted of that sin, then Christ and the Holy Spirit must be largely absent in your life. Because they don't show up and they don't stay when you steep yourself in evil and you ignore their conviction. How I pray that the words that I'm speaking to you right now changes that, if that's you. If Christ were present in your life, you would be convicted of your sin and you would want to turn away from it. That's what the word repentance means, to turn away from sin. It should scare you more to remain in your sin than any horror flick would scare you. And I may not have even touched on the particular sins in your life if you're backslidden right now, the particular sins that plague you, but you know them. You know what they are. If you're embracing evil in your life, instead of abhorring it, you know it. Whether I call it out or not, the question is, what are you going to do about it? These are, there, there are three groups of people listening to me right now. Here and there. Three groups. The Christian, the backslider, and the non-Christian. I'm only concerned with the last two. I'm concerned with the one that is calling himself a Christian, but hasn't acted like one for quite some time. And I'm talking to the person who has yet to make a commitment at all to follow Christ. Those are the two people I'm talking to. To the professing Christian, you may not remember what it's like to abhor evil if you're backslidden. So my question to you is how long? How long have you been backslidden? How long will you continue to wallow in your sin? And your backslidden state. And how long will you continue to taunt Christ? Because that's what you're doing. You're taunting the one who died for your sins. If you care about the state you're in, I've got good news. I've got good news for you. Fortunately, it is not your poor and feeble attempts to hold on to Christ that matter. It's Christ's grip on you that not only keeps you, but has sealed you. He providentially made you hear this sermon this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians 
in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and says, In him that is in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you are in a place right now where instead of abhorring evil, you feel instead like you are tied to it, like you're cleaving to it, if you feel like you've lost all fellowship with God, it does not mean that you've lost your inheritance. That's the first thing I want you to know. You've not broken the seal that the Holy Spirit put on you. Yes, your sin grieves Christ, but Christ has promised to never let you go. John 10, 28 and 29. The Father has given you to Christ and no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Paul instructs the Galatians that if anyone is caught in any transgression, those who are spiritual in the body of Christ should restore that person with the spirit of gentleness. And so I plead now with the backslider who may be listening to me, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. Repent of your backsliddenness. Get into the word of God. Saturate yourself in it and do not let it out of your sight until you build your faith back up. And even then, let not the word out of your sight. Cleave to it. In addition, go to your prayer closet. Ask the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit to overflowing so that you could be led by the Spirit again. Then get back into fellowship with other mature Christian believers and stay in fellowship with Christians and stop hanging out with sinners who could care less about your Christianity and the state of your soul. That's the backslider. To the unsaved, I'll say this, choose whom, whom you will serve this day. You're either going to serve God or you're gonna serve Satan. And since Satan can only do what God allows him to do, your choice is really just between choosing fellowship with God for all eternity or choosing separation from God for all eternity. Right now, if you've never committed your life to Christ, you are separated from God, plain and simple. The Bible says that no one's righteous, no, not even one, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And it says that all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or all who have sinned, I should say, Romans 3.23, that means that none of your good works can save you. Would you like to know why? Because you are born in the lineage of Adam, and Adam sinned against God. And because Adam sinned, we all sin. And because Adam died, we all die because the wages of sin and death. I should say because of the wages of sin and death. Romans 6.23. And because God is entirely righteous and just, in order to stay true to his righteous and just attributes and his character, he demands an atoning sacrifice that is completely righteous without sin, without any sin, without one sin. Jesus is that atoning sacrifice for your sin. He was sent by God the Father for you. 
He sent his son to live a righteous, sinless life in your place to atone for your sins. Every sin that you've committed in the past and every one that you'll commit in the future has been taken care of on Calvary's cross. It's been washed away by the blood of Christ. And as a result, if you put your hope and your trust in Christ, if you believe in him and what he did for you on that cross, and if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved from God's wrath and from that eternal separation that I mentioned a moment ago. God demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, he sent his son to die for you. If you believe that and you confess it, then God has justified you and declared you righteous before him. Not through your righteousness or anything you did, but through Christ's righteousness and what he did. Christ's righteousness has been transferred to you and has taken care of your sins. Now, if you believe that and confess it and you accept Christ as Lord in your life, then now you can enjoy peace with God because you have peace with God. You're no longer separated from him because your sin has been washed away. You can also enjoy the gift of the Holy Spirit who has been sent to guide you and comfort you. You stand no longer condemned before God because you are in Christ. Lastly, I'll close with this. God is holy and he expects you to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16 the instructions for your life from here on out. If you've believed and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and accepted him as your savior, your instructions are the exact same as the instructions I gave to the backslider. Don't neglect these things. You must be in the word of God. You must read it. You must study it every day. You must pray and develop a prayer relationship between you and God. And you must have continual, habitual fellowship with other Christians, good Christians. Not Christians who claim to be Christians and listen to songs like, She Left Her Shoes Under My Bed. Not those kind of Christians, real Christians. So we got through half of verse 9. We learned that, we learned what it means for love to be genuine and we learned what it means to abhor what is evil. Next week we'll do the other half of that verse which is cleaving fast, holding fast to what is good and what that looks like, what that means. And then we'll go into verse 10 where Paul tells us about loving one another with brotherly affection. Let's pray.